This episode is brought to you by DNA Fit, providers of state-of-the-art genetic testing. Their services build a roadmap for your individualized health, fitness, and lifestyle goals by testing the genetic markers that make you unique. As a podcast listener, you get 30% off by going to dnafit.com and using the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout. Also brought to you by Primal Mayo. Made with pure avocado oil, organic cage-free eggs, rosemary extract, vinegar derived from non-GMO beets, and a dash of salt, you can turn any traditional dish into a superfood with just one serving. Healthy mayo? Who knew? Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, introducing your host, L. Russ. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast today. We are so excited to have our guest for the hour, Tovar Saruli. He is the author of A Mindful Carnivore, A Vegetarian's Hunt for Sustenance. You can check out his website at tovarceruli.com. That's spelled T-O-V-A-R-C-E-R-U-L-L-I.com. Welcome to the show, Tovar. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. I read a lot of books, about 30 to 40 books a year, and your book, A Mindful Carnivore, is one of my favorite books. I encourage everyone listening to buy a copy. It's not just another vegan-turned-omnivore story. It's a truly deep philosophical expose, I would say, and history lesson on vegetarianism, agriculture, hunting, logging, spirituality, all those things most people don't think go together. So... We'll chat a bit about your transformation and then get into sort of where you currently are in life. But you weren't born and raised a vegetarian. You initially fished in your youth, and then you started to cut back on meat in your late teens and started to think about sort of where these animals were coming from and then got into spirituality that took you further. So could you just talk a little bit about that transformation? Sure. You know... Uh as you said, I, I I was not brought up vegetarian. I was I was around plenty of vegetarians as a kid, but uh, was not how my family <clears throat> ate generally. And I didn't think much about where my food came from as a kid. Certainly, we did have some gardens, and we I did do some fishing, as you said. But other than that, you know, food came from the grocery store, and I didn't really think about it. But when I was in my late teens, as you said, I started to think a bit more about my diet. And and then when I was 20, I was really exploring questions of, of spirituality in a sense, and really the sort of basic questions that a lot of us ask when we're at that age. Um, who am I? Who do I want to be? What kind of life am I going to lead? And for me, the teachings of of compassion that come out of Buddhism and other traditions as well, really started to affect how I thought about, about what I was eating and, and 
being more mindful of what I was eating and, and where it came from and what the implications were. And then you eventually sort of became even more of a purist. You became a vegan. And, you know, you mentioned that in college, practically all of your friends were vegetarians. And at that time, what was the discussion? Was it just killing another life is wrong and, and this is why? Was there any discussion about sustainability then? Or was it mostly just from a moral, ethical standpoint? For me, it started with that question of ethics and the question of compassion and moral relationship with other life, particularly other mammals and, and other vertebrates. Among my friends, and quickly for me, there were other reasons. Uh, certainly, there was an awareness, you know, this is now, you know, 20, 20 years ago, there was already a very clear awareness and had been for a number of years and decades prior to that of the ecological impacts of various forms of agriculture, including, you know, industrial animal husbandry. So that ecological dimensions were certainly important as well. And you and your girlfriend at the time, then wife, moved in together, decided to sort of garden and grow your own. And in that process, you slowly started to notice that, you know, your garden was constantly being ravaged by critters like woodchucks. And I love this, this quote, the larger than human world was entirely indifferent to your fantasies of harmless eating and conflict-free coexistence. You were starting to realize that you kind of had to be a part of some destruction of life. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the first experience of that and how you tried to overcome it and then realized you sort of couldn't? Yeah, I, mean, I had a number of run-ins with uh, woodchucks and other garden happy critters over the years and at an earlier stage in in my vegan years as i mentioned in the book i tried just to sort of scare them away <laughs> right and, you know pretty pathetically failed at that cuz they come right back <laughs> yeah and i i just sort of at that point in in my journey i just sort of said oh well i just sort of gave up on it and and said well they'll eat a bit and we didn't even have a fence around our garden at that point. So it just was impractical to keep them out. But after we relocated and built, um, you know, bought a house and built a more substantial garden and had a fence that was quite substantial, it's, you know, seven feet above the ground and more than a foot below the ground and pretty, pretty good. When woodchucks started to get into that, <clears throat> I had a different sort of situation on my hands, both because... I had made real efforts to build fortifications. <laughs> uh, and I think because I had already, through reading and, and study of agriculture and wildlife, I had started to realize that things were more complicated, that you know, the soybean fields where my tofu was coming from somewhere in the Midwest, probably the farmers were shooting deer to keep those soybeans growing in profusion because deer love soybeans. And so I started to realize that there were a lot of gray areas in my ideas about food ethics, but it hadn't come that close to home yet. So once a woodchuck, you know, burrowed, who knows, you know, eight feet underground, <laughs> whatever it was, and came up in the middle of the garden and also proved that they're happy to climb fences and trees, you know, they're, they're quite agile. I decided that 
I needed to confront this dilemma. Either I was going to kill that woodchuck because I couldn't seem to keep it out any other way, or I was going to say, well, those five pounds of green beans and those so many pounds of salad greens, I'll just buy them from the farmer down the road who's killing woodchucks. (laughs) (laughs) I can do it myself or have someone else do it. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I could, I could farm it out, literally outsource that particular task, or I could deal with it. And just as I had with insects, which, you know, purist vegans don't want to harm either, as I hadn't wanted to, I decided I had to take, you know, sort of take it head on and deal with it. And so I, I killed that woodchuck and I didn't, enjoy killing the woodchuck for sure. Uh, but it did feel like at least I was confronting this thing honestly. Right. And whether it's spraying bacterium, you know, used by organic farmers to treat pests or, you know, thereby quote murdering insects or, or whether it's shooting a four legged animal, they're both sort of in the same category. I like your expose into sort of the larger agricultural landscape and the connection between everything and sort of the discoveries and connections you were making along the way in realizing that even in composting your garden, you were a part of it as well. Can you talk a little bit about all of those little nuances? Sure. I mean, for a long time, I had been interested in you know, sustainable agriculture and organics and so forth and then reducing use of pesticides and all that. But I was able for a long time, as with the woodchuck, you know, to keep to keep a sense or an illusion that these harmful impacts and harm to wildlife, harm to wildlife habitat, harm to domestic animals, etc., was all distant, that it was all somehow far away <laughs> from me. As with the the insects and woodchucks and so on, it got a lot closer to home when I started to really pay attention to our own food locally and our own garden. Uh, so we happen to live in a spot where the soil is very, very sandy, and it needs all the organic matter that it can possibly get, whether it's, you know, manure or clay, you know, needs nutrients and ability to retain moisture and so on. So we have to bring in to garden right here, we have to bring in some, some nutrients and we could get it. There's a local comp, couple of local compost producers, but they're using animal manure. You know, they're using chicken and cow and other domestic manures. And it's unquestionably really nutrient dense material. But as a vegan, someone who's not eating eggs, not eating dairy products, let alone poultry or red meat, it started to become a bit of a quandary. And the the moment, which I, I think I recount in the book, when I really started to notice this is, you know, shoveling manure out of the back of our pickup truck and coming across a chunk of bone. Bones, yeah. And and you say, if you know, you might not have been eating animals, but your vegetables were. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, because it's very, not only was it the manure, but farmers will compost animals that, that die often. And, and so it, it became kind of startling to, to look at 
my garden and realized that this is kind of a graveyard. (laughs) (laughs) And, And also, though, in the bigger picture, thinking ecologically beyond my personal little obsessions with with ethics of food the natural world is a plant animal system you know nowhere on earth is there any significant segregation between the plant world and the animal world you know animals feed on plants and animals defecate and die Plants and microbes feed on them. I mean, we're all in this system. And only we as humans have tried to draw some kind of conceptual dividing line as as if there's the the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom and they're separate. Right. Then along the way, you started to have, after many years of being a vegan, you started to have some health issues. And of all people, a Buddhist naturopath, which is, as you described, the last person to suggest someone should eat meat, told you to eat more protein, didn't specify meat, but due to some nutrient deficiencies. And at that point, you obviously considered it, and you move forward into sort of starting off lightly with yogurt and eggs. And then you sort of really started to think about hunting. But let's talk a little bit about your first experience there and making that transition. I mean, when you sort of got the go-ahead or the suggestion to eat more protein, did you initially think, well, I'll just eat more tofu? Did you realize, okay, I think I'm going to have to eat some part of an animal here, so I will start with dairy? Just give us a little bit about what's going through your mind then. Yeah, I did have a pretty clear sense that it was going to need to be you know, animal protein of some kind. And if you've been a vegan for a decade, eating a bowl of yogurt is pretty radical. (laughs) (laughs) You don't jump right to like eating mousse. Yeah. No, you don't. It is very strange. The taste and texture of it is strange and the idea of it is strange. So the first step though was a bit of dairy and some, some local eggs, you know, that kind of relatively gentle re-entry into into animal proteins and animal fats and so on. So the step after that, as we started to think about adding some flesh food, some fish, some local chicken, for me, in addition to wanting to know where things came from locally, was to go back to fishing, which I had done as a kid, and to make that hands-on involvement a priority to just to have not that I was going to provide most of our food that way by any stretch of the imagination. I don't live on the ocean, but that I could at least have some direct confrontation with it and know where some of it was coming from firsthand. And you you talk a little bit about how you recognize that even you know yogurt production involved the killing of calves, as soybean production involves maybe the killing of deer. And you pose the question, you know, ethically, which was more palatable, flesh from a wild fish or milk from a domestic cow with a calf about to be taken away to slaughter? You know, the morality of the subject, you said, started to lose a little bit of oomph there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have vegetarians who eat dairy, often don't really know much about dairy production. I mean, I didn't grow up on a dairy farm, so I didn't really know much about it. But, you know... Male male calves, whether they're killed when they're really young or fattened up and, and made a little older before they're killed, you know, aren't very useful in dairy production. 
And so half of the calves uh, basically go to slaughter sooner or later. And, you know, even the milk producing cows, of course, eventually either die or are, are slaughtered. So, yeah, you start to look too closely at anything, be it agriculture, you know, vegetable agriculture or animal husbandry. And you start to realize that these systems there are better and worse ways of doing them. You know, there are more humane and less humane, more ecological and less ecological ways of doing all these things. But none of them is a simple, isolated sort of food that comes out of nowhere. Right. And you're, I mean, I am a meat eater and have been my whole life and I still have not hunted. I mean, I fished before, but I love the idea of, you know, you, you were like, if I, if I'm going to eat flesh foods, I need to be brought face to face with it. And, and look it directly in the eye, like literally. And um, it took you a while to get to the point where you actually hunted a four-legged creature versus fishing. It took you a, a little bit of a transition there. And I want to talk a little bit about this one little subject you mentioned about the Dalai Lama, who doesn't, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, or at least he doesn't prevent or say you shouldn't eat meat, but they do say animals should not be killed for food. So Tibetan Buddhists could buy meat but they couldn't order it since that might lead to an animal being killed. And, you know, I kind of find this a little bit hilarious and hypocritical because, again, it's like, like you've mentioned before in other interviews, it's it's killing by proxy versus someone else doing it for you. So I just thought that was such an interesting point and something I didn't know. And I like that you took it head on as most omnivores do not. You're like, all right, let's see what this is about. And on your way from fishing to hunting, you really took a very mindful, thoughtful, educational process. You learned more than most people do who just might go out with a buddy who's hunted before, grab a gun, and just kind of join join the game. You really educated yourself. You read a lot of books on the subject. And you, even before you did your first sort of attempt at a deer hunt, you scoured the woods and prepped yourself in summer and kind of scoured the landscape and we're sort of scoping and planning, which is a lot more than I think most people do. So can you talk a little bit about that and your transition from fishing to learning how to hunt? Sure. It was a big step for me, as I think it is for a lot of people who, who come to hunting later in life, in that even though in some ways you can say that fishing and hunting really aren't that different, <laughs> Taking the life of a fellow mammal in particular, birds occupy this strange middle ground for most of us uh, between fish and mammals. But taking the life of a fellow mammal is, you know, fairly substantial experience if you didn't grow up with it um, on a farm or hunting. It's, it's a fairly big deal for a lot of us. And, of course, there are all sorts of other issues. There's this, the stereotypes and prejudices that we have about hunting and hunters there's firearms if you're hunting with a with a firearm and, and the issues that are all there, including safety. So it was something that I was curious about, partly as a way to confront the mortality of my food, as you suggest, and also because it was a way to get to know the land in a different way. I, I live in a rural area and the the landscape and the woods are, you know, right outside the door. So I was more interested in that, say, than raising chickens, which I had some experience with as a kid. And I just, 
had more of an affinity with that exploration of the wild as a potential uh, source of, of food and greater knowledge of my place in the world. But I did want to really think deeply about it before I went and did it. And partly that's just a personality issue. <laughs> that's who I am. But it's, it was also, it gave me time to wrap my mind around it and to adjust sort of mentally, emotionally, spiritually, adjust my psyche to the to to the hunt and to the possibility of the hunt. So reading all of those books that I read about hunting gave me that kind of context where I could find others who might be lifelong hunters, but their views and their voices helped me shape my own ways of thinking about what I was embarking upon. Yeah, and you mentioned too, you know, just the thought you present the notion of, you know, we've been part of the ecosystem of the earth for so long as humans. Why do we consider predation as unnatural? And sort of making that transition into it feeling natural for you. Right. I mean, we've been agricultural for, you know, 10 or 20,000 years. Uh, and hunting, predation has become further and further removed from the center of most of our lives, there are certainly peoples around the world for whom it has remained very central. But for the vast majority of the world's population, it's become more and more peripheral and something that we might do because we want to, but it's not part of our daily uh, subsistence and it's not part of our, it's not central to our, to our culture. Uh, so traditional hunting cultures, I think, typically have a much more intact sense of the human being part of nature and not a separation really between the two. And you talk about sort of, you you mention a story about a woman, Val Plumwood, who, who wrote an essay called uh, Being Prey. She was a vegetarian and then was attacked by a crocodile uh, and was reflecting on the reduction of, you know, being a complex human being to being reduced to a piece of meat and mentioning the notion of just the denial that we are also animals positioned in this food chain. And you yourself had an experience with your wife where you were camping out and you there was a bobcat you later found out, but, you know, it kind of kept you up most of the night. You were definitely on your toes, you know, outside. And so you had that sort of subtle feeling probably as well later on that you had then been put in sort of one of those positions a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, Val Plumwood is, you know, <clears throat> now... Uh, now deceased as of as of some years ago, but she was a very well known environmental philosopher in Australia, and has her work is, is just remarkable. Uh, that essay on on being prey and and other of her essays and books, and she really takes apart and closely examines some of these assumptions, these these fears about being part of nature, about being, as you say, in the food chain. It's something that, again, a lot of cultures around the world have a strong aversion to, and in, particularly in Western culture, we've really separated ourselves in many ways from, from the natural world. And yet there are also still cultures that have that intact sense that 
you know, we don't, we're not going to go out and lie down and let the lion eat us. You know? Right. <laughs> but, you know, we are part of this natural system. We are not some separate cultural world that's apart from the natural world. Um, and it's, it's uncomfortable, you know. We don't like to think about our own demise. And as, as Plumwood points out, you know, even after we are dead, we put ourselves in these cement, <laughs> these concrete bunkers under, right. underground, you know, and these coffins. And as if we're going to keep the natural course of things at bay, as if we're not going to decompose and become part of the earth again eventually. Right, sort of, you mentioned, you know, talking about, like, in adopting veganism, you know, you sort of morally set yourself above that predator-prey relationship, losing sight of your unity with the other animals, and sort of the same thing here, sort of just that similar theme. Yeah, and, and a lot of people have made that kind of critique of vegetarianism or veganism, that we're somehow setting ourselves apart from from nature or the natural order of things. And I, you know, I, I'm cautious with that because I have a lot of good vegetarian friends, you know, sure. and even vegan friends. And to, I'm cautious about suggesting um, that there's something sort of elitist or something, elitist right, or, sure. or, or that they're distancing themselves or being dishonest or something like that. One of the great pleasures in in publishing this book and getting reviews and having conversations with people at uh, book talks and elsewhere is that vegetarians by and large have responded positively to it and have said that they really understand more about hunting and are more open-minded to different diets they might still be vegetarian and they might even want to be more extreme in their veganism after reading the book, but, but that they understand that I'm not trying to sort of convert them into another way of eating or thinking and so forth. So all that, you know, as sort of a caveat for me, yes, I think that my veganism, at least in part, involved that kind of distancing and denial of being an animal that is part of this natural world that I, that I'm in. Another interesting idea that we see out there and that you grappled with too before you made your transition from fishing to actually then killing a four-legged animal was just sort of that I this idea that fishing is more socially acceptable than hunting which is totally true <laughs> so um i'm just yeah curious about where you were then you know here you are and you're starting to fish again you're eating fish but yet you still are not you know feeling great about hunting a four-legged animal and can you just sort of talk a little bit about that notion because we do somehow feel that it's less uh somehow more ethical or 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 more acceptable than actually you know shooting a deer right and as i suggest in the book briefly i think there are a number of, of factors there for me um there was still my my there was still my attitudes about about hunting and the the sense of the violence of of hunting despite the fact that when fishing one is you know 
is catching and, and taking the life of another being for sure. So part of it, I think, is about the, the, the violence and our prejudices about hunting. Part of it, too, is, as I briefly mentioned, that fish occupy a different sort of category. And this appears to be true cross-culturally, that though fish are certainly, you know, living beings, they are widely perceived across cultures as sort of a little bit closer to plants and other mammals are closer to us and other mammals tend to be addressed like in traditional hunting cultures as people and fish less so, you know. So there's a, a greater comfort, I guess, or ease um, in taking the life of a fish than there is in, in taking the life of another mammal. So there were a lot of different elements to it. Uh, and I was much more uh, tentative about the idea of of taking on both the practice of hunting, but also this identity, you sure. know, this, this mantle of, oh, he's a hunter. <laughs> it was bad. It was bad enough to have to tell my friends, friends find out that I was fishing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You've got to like continue to admit and come out on like every different level of your journey. <laughs> and that's right. That's right. And I, you know, I've written about and, and talked with people about that metaphor of coming out of the closet uh, you know, yeah. as a as a hunter the first time i published a one-page essay uh in a, a regional magazine here in the northeast about hunting i was a little uneasy it felt kind of odd to becoming a public hunter and there are plenty of people including lifelong hunters who you know don't make it too public, especially if they live in an area where they know that it's not going to be a popular sort of uh, pastime, they uh, will keep it in the closet. Are you someone who appreciates a fast, casual dining experience? Is it important that the taste of your food and the freshness of the ingredients take center stage? Well, bringing that experience to a table near you is the mission of the hottest new franchise concept in North America, Primal Kitchen Restaurants. If you want to learn more about this one-of-a-kind franchising opportunity, go to PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com. That's PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com. Now, I want to get back to hunting, and there's so much more to talk about with just hunter education and all of the interesting things you're doing there. But I briefly want to talk about your logging experience. So here's another area <laughs> that's really interesting. You sort of got into the logger life there for a bit. And that was another sort of conundrum, right? This, this bridging the gap between your, your love of forests and living beings and then the necessity of shelter and food and, and that wood brings and your experience there. It really seems like in general, Tovar, every area of your life that you're interested in, you, you do you take such a mindful, active interest in and you went and apprenticed with a logger. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there? Yeah, you know, it was very similar <clears throat> in a way, and it predated my hunting. I had been working as a carpenter for a number of years, so I was using wood all the time. I lived in houses made of wood my entire life. I lived with a wood stove most of my life. You know, wood was a constant part of my life, not to mention paper and all kinds of other products that are derived from wood, but just the very visible raw material of wood was constantly part of my life. And yet I had, I knew nothing about forestry or logging. And 
as an environmentalist, you know, the, the sounds of chainsaws and seeing logging trucks go down the road, uh, even though I'd done some research on, on sustainable logging back in college, I, I still really was uncomfortable with all of that and, and didn't know much about it. And so being in the woods and learning about forestry and actually learning how to fell trees and all was was quite eye-opening and like killing that woodchuck you know i had to get over my own discomfort and find some way to integrate both my reverence for the woods and my respect for trees which i didn't want to abandon any more than I want to abandon my respect and reverence for other life, including other mammals. And I had to integrate that with the material reality of that wood and the wood that I burn and am sheltered by and so on. So again, very similarly, being part of a natural system, respecting life, honoring the forest, honoring animals, but also using them too. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was an education. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then and after that, you said, you know, that predated your, your hunting days. And uh, let's get into the hunting, but I want to, <laughs> I'm laughing because the, before you actually hunted a four-legged animal, you thawed a moose steak, which was a gift to you from a local hunter. And you thought, you know, I better eat this first and see how it feels, right? Now, I was laughing when I read this because I've had moose, and that is a very dense-tasting meat. It, it's something that even meat eaters would <laughs> can be turned off by. So when I when I read that you jumped right into eating moose, I was like, wow, that that's a, a pretty big jump. And that was your uh, very sort of first culinary try there. Can you talk a little bit about that and then we can move into sort of the hunting experience? Yeah, you know, the this local hunter that I knew knew I was curious about hunting. And so he, he gave me a, a couple of packages from his freezer and one of them was this, this moose steak. And, you know, I didn't really have any preconceived notions about, well, you know, moose tastes like that, deer tastes like this. This is how it compares to beef. And of course, I'd forgotten what beef tasted like anyway. Right. <laughs> After all those years, um, so I didn't have any really strong, you know, notions about what would taste a certain way. And so I said, "Well, I, you know, I'd, I'd better try this and see if I really want to eat any red meat because we hadn't made that shift into eating red meat yet. But if I was going to be hunting, then I was going to." be likely bringing home red meat at some point. And so my wife was out of town for a few days and it felt, you know, it sounds kind of strange in retrospect, but it felt like a very sort of private ritual. Even though she was making these dietary changes with me and was supportive of my hunting, understanding where I was coming from with it, she'd been vegetarian when we got together. And so, yet it felt private. So I thawed this moose steak out and cooked it. Now that I think back, I, I didn't cook it very well. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't cooked red meat in, you know, 10 or 15 years. So it it's, wasn't terribly well done uh, or it was overdone. But regardless of, of how well it had been cooked, I think that far more than yogurt 
the texture and flavor or eggs or even chicken, the texture and flavor or fish, red meat was both physically, but also at a psychic level or a psyche level, psychologically and spiritually, just alien. Yeah. And so, so eating it seemed so strange that all of the, the physical experience of it, as well as the idea of it. And as I mentioned in the book, it wasn't, you know, some meat from somewhere. It was a moose. And I knew the hunter, he and his brother had killed this moose. And so it was very specific. I couldn't just chalk it up to the grocery store, you know? And so I felt kind of unsettled, you know, it didn't settle easily. And then a day or two later, after I had had a chance to think about it and let the notion and the feeling of of that food settle, sort of digest it literally and figuratively, I had the leftovers, which were in the fridge. And it was a completely different experience. It felt fine. It didn't seem strange in my mouth. It didn't seem strange in my stomach. And at a at some kind of mental and emotional level, I had adjusted and welcomed that into my into my system, into my world. And so it felt it felt fine. But it was a very strange transitional period. I can only imagine. And then it's still from there. There were a few ad- sort of failed attempts and a long process before you actually then did kill your first animal. But you really went out and got a lot of education regarding hunting before you. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what you went through? And not, I mean, obviously not all the specifics you learned, but you really, you not only read a lot, but you, you took like a class or a course, um, correct? Sure. I mean, in pretty much every state, it varies depending on somewhat on state to state and how old you are and stuff. But basically, hunter education is required to get a license in in most states. And you need to go through a course which is essentially designed for safety. I mean, the, the origins of hunter education, which is several decades old, is in safety, just making both hunters and other people safer uh, in the in the context of firearms and so forth. So that's required, and I did that. And it does include some other material. Hunter education talks about conservation. It talks about ethics to some degree. But the focus is strongly on safe handling of firearms and the like. So for me, that was not nearly enough to feel competent or, or confident in the woods as a hunter. And it's not for most people. I mean, that hunter safety education is a safety-specific adjunct to the traditional passing down of knowledge through families and, you know, apprenticeship with you know, an uncle, a grandmother, grandfather, whatever, you know, a father. That's how hunting knowledge has been passed down in communities, you know, since time began. (laughs) 
and it's still true. So those of us who come to it as as adults, we need to find some other way uh, if we don't have that built in. I was fortunate in that I do have one uncle who is a hunter and has been for almost all of his life since he was a teenager. And so he was able and and quite generous in helping me figure out, you know, both practically and to some degree philosophically what I was what I was doing. And so we had, you know, 10,000 emails back and forth. I can only imagine. Just a barrage of endless questions about, you know, everything from firearms to, you know, different sort of wildlife sign in the woods and just all kinds of things. And he was immensely uh, patient and also, to his credit, uh, immensely accepting of the possibility that I might not go through with it go through with it and, and remain a hunter for years that I might explore it. And at some point decide this really wasn't right for me. And he was quite accepting of that and told me that, which gave me a lot of permission to explore the possibility without feeling that I was trapping myself or pressured into anything or feeling like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, can you talk now? One of the things that interested me because I'm not a hunter and I'm not familiar sort of with anything involving it other than, you know, beware hiking during hunting season and things like that. You you talk about the story about you sort of found like a hunting cheater in the woods, right? There was uh, something involving a block of salt and a chainsaw. Can you can you tell everyone about that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I found this spot. I was, it was either, it was right, I think during bow season, maybe so it was in October. So I was out walking around, just scouting, looking for deer sign and so on. And I found this spot where someone had set up a, a, a tree stand and they'd cut down a small tree, you know, not a, not a tiny tree. I think it was probably five or six inches around on, you know, on someone else's land. They'd cut down this tree and then they had, you know, both, I think they had both a block of salt and some apples there. The t- <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm, I got to stop you there. So I, I didn't realize, first of all, that that, well, I could see the apples, but I didn't realize a block of salt was a, a deer attractor uh, sort of bait. So I think that's kind of funny and interesting. But also, are there, is it sort of an unspoken thing that you don't do that? Or is it a spoken thing that you don't do that? Well, it, it depends on where you are and what you're doing. At that time here in Vermont, I believe that the apples were legal, though many hunters would argue not ethical. Mm-hmm. But the salt was illegal. So, so it was, and it depends from state to state. There are states where you can bait with a certain things and not with others. There are states where baiting or feeding deer at all is illegal. Now in Vermont, it's illegal. Okay to feed or bait deer, period. But these, these rules and, and the, the, the legal and ethical <laughs> rules and conversations vary quite a lot from place to place. But I found it kind of repulsive that someone would, you know, both, you know, cut a tree down on someone else's property. And the irony was that the guy's name was on the stand. <laughs> I know you said that. So he basically left a, uh, uh, absolute proof of, of everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that, 
that's required by law too. Your name is supposed to be on your stand, but you know, of all things to adhere to the law on, put your name on the stand and do everything else illegally. Yeah, um, it's like doing a B and E and then leaving your driver's license at the. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really interesting. Let's talk about. Uh, so, I, I mean, I want people to read the book and, and get the full experience, but then of course we do experiencing you finally making that first kill, and then what really sort of got me about that was even though you had witnessed and been a part of skinning an animal before, it's like when you killed your animal, you say, you know, you pulled out the manual on how to skin an animal and you were sort of doing it right there and you talk about it. And I thought that was really interesting. It's like, you know, you're in the middle of the woods and you're, you're still kind of an amateur green hunter and you've got to like pull out the manual and follow it probably with your knife. I can only imagine going from eating a piece of moose to skinning an animal and all that that entails. But the experience sounds really fascinating. You don't have to go too into it because I, I would love everyone to definitely read about it. But what was that like? I imagine you're speaking here about my first deer, right? Right, right. Yeah, because I, you know, in addition to the woodchuck, which is not really hunting, that's agriculture. But well, that's true. <laughs> uh, I had taken a, a, a few snowshoe hares, which are basically really big rabbits. So I had done some small game hunting, which was also challenging both in the in the attempting to do it and also in the success and oh my god I have a dead animal <laughs> and how do I feel about that and what do I do with it now but the the scale of all of those challenges went much higher with deer first of all as you read in the book it took me several years to <laughs> succeed yeah. in, in taking a deer uh, but then also the emotional repercussions and the technical challenges of dealing with something that's as big as I am it was, you know, th those were quite, quite a bit larger and, and quite a bit more complex. And I was, as you say, completely amateurish. <laughs> I mean, I not, not in maybe my attitudes, but certainly in my technical knowledge. And so... I had this vague memory of how my uncle had gone about field dressing or gutting a, a deer a few years earlier. And I had this eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that I had kept from my hunter education class you know, several years earlier. But that was really the extent of my knowledge. And I, you know, didn't have a smartphone in the woods i could click into youtube and you know look up <laughs> get a video how do i really do this so i you know i made the best of it but it is it is completely a completely different order of experience as anyone who grew up on a farm can tell you you know to sitting down to eat a hamburger and killing and then butchering an animal are completely different things <laughs> yeah. and it's something that we've large by and large in our society become extremely removed from not just where our vegetables come from and what the ecological or ethical implications are of any part of our diet but but specifically taking the life of and then processing an animal and you actually inspired me to i've never thought about hunting i mean other than you know fishing in my life randomly your book actually 
gave me the interest to try it and not that I will become a full-fledged hunter on a regular basis, but really sort of in the mindfulness of it, in the experience of it, in the being connected to what I am buying at the grocery store every day. And I kind of wanted to also go through that after reading your book. I never thought those words would come out of my mouth to say that I would like to go hunting, but I would now. <laughs> and, and, it, and it isn't because I want to go kill an animal. I mean, you know, clearly I'm a part of that anyway because I'm a meat eater, but it really, uh, your expose of the whole experience just made me really interested in, again, like getting back to that connection. And, you know, here at the Primal Blueprint, we talk about primal paleo. I mean, there's nothing more primal than killing and eating your own animal. And I'd love to experience that at some point. So I, I was really inspired by your story where otherwise I would have never thought about hunting or even given it an I, you know, given it a thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I have both informally, but also formally in the context of some grad school work talked with and interviewed a lot of hunters and for a lot of hunters who come to it as adults, that dimension of feeling connected to and a sense of belonging in the natural world and the food cycle and wanting to take some kind of firsthand responsibility ethically, ecologically, and so on for your food, that's often a motivating factor. And it isn't just about hunting. For many people, it also informs their choice to garden or to raise chickens or whatever else they do. Right. Tell us now, after you got into hunting, and it's been a while, have you tried hunting, you know, in other states, other countries? Did you explore outside of your own backyard with hunting? Not much, really, at this, you know, so far. I have mostly hunted here in Vermont, where I live. I've hunted a little bit um, in neighboring states, you know, I have both my uncle and uh, a good friend in Massachusetts, which is just south of me, and a little bit, tiny bit over in Maine, but also, you know, all pretty close to home. And I, d I don't have a, a hankering to go, you know, hunting the world. You know, it's, right. not, it's not something that particularly appeals to me personally. But, you know, I'm, I'm open to some, you know, some experiences elsewhere. I have a good friend who's, you know, for years been, been talking about going out to Colorado and I have friends in Colorado, you know, to, to possibly hunt out there. And I have a, a opportunity to spend some time, um, as part of a writing residency this, this fall in New Mexico and have a good friend there with whom I expect to do a, a bit of hunting but uh, yeah, mainly it's been sort of a, you know, getting to know my, my place and hunting pretty locally. You're really, you do a lot of speaking and you're involved in, at least from what I've gathered, really building bridges between communities, whether it be vegetarians and vegans and omnivores or hunting conservationists and non-hunting environmentalists. Talk a little bit about your mission now and, and what's really on your mind as far as what, what you'd like to contribute? A big part of that for me, uh, beyond the sort of food ethics issues, which I think are, are certainly important, for me, a lot of this has to do with environmental and wildlife conservation. And that whole field of endeavor is 
facing huge challenges right now, ecological challenges, cultural challenges, political and economic challenges. There's a lot going on. And can you give I us think, an example? Can you give us like a specific example that someone sure. who's not aware of any of this might kind of be like, well, what kind of problems, what kind of issues? Sure. I mean, ecologically, there's continued habitat loss to development. And climate change is a big issue for wildlife conservation right now. Economically, the model that has long funded state fish and wildlife agencies is really in fiscal trouble. And we need to sort of deal with how we're going to fund the good work that those agencies do. And culturally and politically, in direct relation to this question of bridge building, we're at a time of, of a lot of division and a lot of sort of extremism and the so-called culture wars and so forth. So having the different sides of the environmental and conservation movement work together has, is, is more, more critical than ever. And historically, these forces were more integrated. I mean, the folks who started the Audubon Society, which is largely understood as an environmental organization, and the folks who started the Boone and Crockett Club, which is a hunting conservation organization that's best known for keeping trophy records, you know, mm -hmm. those organizations were started by the same people who, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and George Grinnell and others, hunters and non-hunters working together, John Weir starting the Sierra Club and Ding Darling starting the National Wildlife Federation. I mean, these were all collaborations across groups across people who hunted, who didn't hunt, who lived in cities, who were rural. Uh, there was a lot of collaboration, understanding of the importance of that. And we've come a long way from that, unfortunately. And these organizations have, and the sort of cultural and political affiliations have really fractured and fragmented. So I personally think that bringing those groups, at least to some extent, back together at least as far as being able to recognize common ground and build partnerships in which diverse views are valued and respected is, is critical for us in terms of our environmental work and particularly wildlife conservation as well. And the food movement, or I guess... I mean, there's always been a food movement every year. It's a new fad or whatnot over the mm -hmm. over time. But, you know, we'd like to think here at Primal Blueprint and in general, just living a paleo life. The paleo movement itself is sort of bringing more awareness because of our attention to how animals are raised or what they're fed. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, just I, I would say bringing more awareness and attention to that connection we've lost with food um, and to be more aware of that. I know more people that have their own chickens now and, and that's sort of becoming really popular, particularly in places like California where it's seemingly very easy and um, year-round a no-brainer for people. So let's talk a little bit about that, your experience with the food movement and how it's helping or not the commonalities we'd like to see happen more often. Mm -hmm. It's certainly drawing more attention to both the ethical and ecological dimensions of food. And that's been going on since, you know, the 1960s or 70s. But certainly, I think most folks who were tuned into it would agree that in the past, you know, decade plus with 
Michael Pollan's work coming out, films like Food Inc., the growing interest in you know paleo and primal diets, and all these different things that have been going on go far beyond nutrition. You know, they go far beyond how does it affect me to eat this. <laughs> they draw our attention to and make us more mindful of all of those interconnections and the implications ethically, morally, and ecologically and environmentally. Um, for some people, I think the so-called food movement has really spurred a greater awareness of these environmental and conservation-related issues. You know, sometimes I have a, a concern that the the so-called food movement and various sub-branches of it are a little bit isolated and over-fascinated with their own questions. You know? sure, sure. We, we, we've even said that ourselves here and just, you know, when you get hardcore about something and whether that's being a vegan or whether that's being paleo, sometimes you can lose sight of some things and to sort of widen the, uh, you know, the scope a little bit is always right. good. Yeah. And, and so, for instance, one thing that I did not tackle in, in my book but have certainly been aware of um, are the the human rights and labor and social justice issues that are deeply tied to food. And there, there's more work, both books and films, coming out about that now. And, you know, but from, you know, the way immigrant farm laborers are treated um, to, you know, grocery stores. So there's all kinds of issues there. Yeah. And on that note, I do want to mention, you know, I remember years and years ago, and I don't know if it's still going on, but in California, particularly with the immigrants, Southern California, San Diego area, there was a big problem. And I'm, I think Cesar Chavez's daughter or relative was getting involved with trying to fix this, but it was on the level of even just uh, an immigrant worker, female, pregnant, has to go back to work the next day of the fields after having her baby. Like, there's no, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like that's fine. You want free, cheap, cheap labor. That's great. Can you give this woman a couple of weeks, please? <laughs> you know, does she have to go right back to the lettuce? And yeah. so it was even just issues like that, which we don't even think about, you know, until mm -hmm. they're brought to our attention. So that is one issue I know was, uh, obviously, aside from their treatment, but that, that was one area of treatment that was, you know, stood out to me. Yeah. I mean, healthcare is, you know, Healthcare and and working and living conditions are certainly one of the central set of issues that that do need to be addressed. And I think that, to their credit, there are people you know who are lending their voices to that more and more. And I hope that that continues and brings you know the food movement a little bit down out of its ethereal bubble you know, <laughs> that it can, it can get into sometimes uh, and back down to some, you know, of the basic issues that are affecting us and other communities around us. What would you, what's your sort of biggest mission right now or something before we go that you'd like to share with the listeners or something for us to either think about or get involved with or be more aware of? That's a good question. My focus, as I said, is, is really on sort of environmental and wildlife conservation issues at the moment. But in my work more broadly and in this book, my hope is to 
create spaces and inspire other people to create spaces in which we can really listen to and learn from each other, from others particularly that we consider different from us, non-hunters from learning from hunters and vice versa, omnivores learning from vegetarians and vice versa, you know, really learning to respect one another's perspectives and find often that there's common ground and shared values where we didn't expect them. Um, I think for me, that is of great value in any arena, whether we're talking food politics or talking environmental conservation. I think we or social have, politics, yeah, any aspect. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, it's really important for us, not that we're going to agree with everyone, not that we're going to like everyone, that's not going to happen, <laughs> but that we can overcome some of the stereotypes and the black and white dichotomies that we tend to fall into in our thinking. I think that's really important. And we only can do it if we're willing to engage with people and actually listen to where they're coming for long enough and, and deeply enough to get past all of our uh, habitual sort of defenses and, and coming up with ammunition for the next thing we're going to say. You should be a mediator between all groups that disagree with each other. <laughs> you should, I mean, I might call you on my next, uh, you know, next kerfuffle with my brother or something and see <laughs> if you have any good advice. Um, no, but I, I really, I just want to, again, share with the audience this book. There are many uh, organizations across the sort of political spectrum and uh, across the spectrum of specific um, interests. But whatever, whatever your interests are, if you have any outdoor interests at all, you will find, you know, organizations that are doing environmental and conservation work that's, you know, somehow connected with that, whether it's hiking or birding or hunting or, you know, spending time on the water. Yeah, especially here in California, Surf Rider Foundation and a bunch of ocean conservancy programs, of course, is, is huge here. Um, and then, of, of course, uh, we can look online and just check out national organizations as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to leave our readers with? Or otherwise, we'll just check you out on your website. That's great. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thanks so much, Tovar. See everyone later. Hi, listeners. It's Brad Kearns to tell you about our partner on the podcast, dnafit.com. Mark and I both went through the DNA Fit process and received our reports and were quite interested to read the results. Some of them confirmed the healthy lifestyle behaviors that we've been doing, but I was also really surprised to learn that I was predominantly a strength and power-oriented athlete rather than endurance, which has been my lifelong background. Other things on the report that are quite interesting are your sensitivity to carbohydrates, your need for vitamin D. This is a snapshot of what makes you tick, and it'll just help you inform the best practices to undergo as you're trying to dial in your exercise patterns and your diet. And you can go to dnafit.com and get a 30% discount on their comprehensive package just for listening to the podcast. And all you have to do to get that 30% discount is enter the discount code PRIMALBLUEPRINT 